If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a reoccurring or one-time donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate Now button. Donations made to Mayflower's Radio Fund are tax-deductible and go toward keeping this podcast available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Robin Myers, senior minister in one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe that religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here ends the reading of the word inspired by God. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Every once in a while, there's a text that sits so close to the white, hot center of the gospel, it really should come with a warning of some kind. I mean, when we're out for dinner and the waiter brings your food, often he will say, be very careful, this plate is very hot. And we say, thank you. And then we don't touch the plate, at least not on purpose. In this well-known passage that sits right in the center of Mark's gospel, there is a text that is too hot to touch. You might get singed just by listening to it. We know the story, if we're church people, of course, but sometimes you can hear something familiar and it suddenly sounds new as if you're hearing it again for the first time. To set the scene, Jesus and his disciples have been all over Galilee announcing the reign of God and healing people, and they're now on the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, 
when Jesus decides to ask his disciples two important questions. First, a simple objective question. Who do people say that I am? Or more importantly, who do you say that I am? You're my inner circle, so if you don't know, who does? Now, before we talk about their answers, just consider how strange it is that Jesus is even asking this question. Does he want to know what people have been saying about him? Does he want to know what his poll numbers are out in the countryside? Or, or is it something that's going on with Jesus himself? No one ever preaches from this angle. Why would Jesus care about this? Is he feeling a moment of self-doubt, of despair perhaps, and needs this feedback for a little affirmation? See, our problem's always the same one. We read our adoration for Jesus back into the text, which makes Peter's ultimate answer, you're the Messiah, seem obvious, but that's a mistake. When Peter writes his first ever gospel, perhaps uh, around or right after the destruction of the temple, four decades have gone by since Jesus was executed by Rome. And there's already a conflict in the young church, including whether Peter or Paul best represents the essence of Jesus. Are you in the Pauline camp or are you in the Petrine camp to sound all scholarly about it? So it could well be that Mark put these words into the mouth of Jesus as a way of taking sides and choosing Peter, the Petrine tradition. At first, the disciples, of course, offer up a list of famous people, whether to make themselves feel more important or to build up Jesus, we don't know. They say, some say you are John the Baptist. He was a big deal. Others, Elijah, another big deal. Still others, one of the prophets, all big deals. And then this follow-up, but who do you say that I am? This is not multiple choice. You have to decide. Give me your final answer. Then Peter gushes forth, you're the Messiah. No doubt about it. I wonder if he was a little too eager when he said this, like some students I've had over the years that love having the right answer all the time. But Peter, uh, Jesus does not say, Right you are, Peter, such a bright lad and good student. Instead, he begins to talk about what it means to be a true Messiah, just so there is no misunderstanding going forward. What he says is absolutely impossible for the disciples to hear, that the Son of Man must undergo suffering, great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and then be killed. Peter is particularly disturbed and sort of takes Jesus aside for, for a little talk about his campaign message, as if maybe he can talk Jesus out of all this dark talk of suffering and death. And Jesus explodes and says, get behind me, Satan. You can't blame Peter. This is not what any of them have in mind. They, they want to win. And, and this does not sound like winning. Peter's just speaking for the group. He's a Jew. The other disciples are Jewish. Jesus is a Jew. So let's be clear. Jews did not believe, indeed no one believed, that a real Messiah suffers and dies. That's not how it works. That would make them all losers. What Messiah puts this on his resume will suffer and die for a promotion no, a Messiah is a powerful leader 
who will overthrow Israel's enemies, perhaps a military king like David. Unless we forget, this is no ancient inclination, we still elect politicians who project strength, self-confidence, and promise to restore greatness. Often by using fear to divide, weakness being the antithesis of a Messiah. And yet, he said this, he said it, and we're stuck with it, and it makes the gospel not only unique, but equal parts absurd and scandalous. He says that to follow him, his disciples would have to, keyword, deny themselves, deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow him. Then he utters his favorite aphorism, wisdom saying, the one he repeats more than any other in the New Testament, for those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it, for what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? And there you have it. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The authentic spiritual life in just a few sentences, which, if we are honest about it, are the most countercultural words we have ever heard. First of all, nobody encourages kids to grow up to be followers. I'm right, parents, you don't you raise your kids to be leaders. No college commencement speaker ever congratulates the graduating class on becoming the followers of tomorrow. People do not receive community following awards. No one's resume highlights what a strong follower the applicant is. No parent's heart swells with pride when another parent says, you know, your kid's a real follower. And yet that's what we talk about all the time in here, following Jesus instead of worshiping Christ. And here it is, the central thesis of discipleship in the New Testament. Discipleship is about following and about sacrificing. Sometimes more than you ever dreamed you would sacrifice. But honestly, how many of us really like the idea of losing our lives? Not me. I want it to last a little longer. We, in fact, are urged every day to find ourselves, not to lose ourselves. We are persuaded every single day in a non-stop barrage of messages to purchase something which will make us happy, except that it turns out to be true that the only way money really makes you happy is when you give it away. It has become a cliche that is often used by nonprofits to raise and spend money, but it's true. Only when we love something unselfishly does that love come back to us tenfold. Only when we give without strings attached does the gift make the giver feel truly rich. Only when we deny ourselves something to help provide something more for someone else do we feel that we are the ones who've received the most. Now, it might go without saying, but it shouldn't that this doesn't mean that the suffering others inflict upon you must always be borne without resistance. So, for example, a woman is not being counseled here to stay in an abusive marriage, nor a child who is being molested to suffer in silence because everyone has his or her cross to bear. Mm -mm. Jesus isn't talking about the crosses that others make you bear 
but the ones you have chosen to bear on behalf of others. If we were to put this in today's vernacular, it might begin and end with the sort of common phrase, get over yourself. The only way to guarantee misery in this world is to pursue happiness as an individual consumer activity. Because there's not enough stuff in the universe to make you happy only when you find your relationships to be meaningful. The relationships have to be meaningful. And this simple but powerful idea that gratitude is the beginning of all wisdom, only then will you understand these upside-down words, this anti-gospel from the anti-king. In our world, the message is exactly the opposite, isn't it? To the winner go the spoils. Everything is a competition. Even grace is a zero-sum game. We're taught to idolize the so-called successful people, leaders, athletes, entrepreneurs, the beautiful people, the celebrities who are, of course, well-known for being well-known in ways that rob us of the chance to celebrate the real heroes of this and every age, namely parents who adopt disabled children to give them a chance at life, no greater love. People who give one of their kidneys to a perfect stranger because it's a perfect match, and they have two, and they can live with one. Think about it. Teachers who come in early and stay late and buy supplies out of their own pocket, all the while not being valued by men who could not survive one day in a public school classroom. <laughs> the culture says, don't deny yourself, indulge yourself. You want this, you know you do. And so we constantly worry about something we don't have and all the ways we've fallen short. And this is where I think Christianity can learn from Buddhism. Those who cannot control their wants and distinguish them, distinguish them from their needs will self-destruct. This passage is about real life, not the pseudo-life that advertisers and politicians promise us. Just imagine, for example, what would happen in this country if all lawmakers denied themselves their selfish attachment to special interests, did not pursue a future career while in office, and actually sacrificed short-term gains for long-term opportunities and for justice. You know what we would call them? We would call them public servants. At their swearing-in, it might sound like this. If any of you wants to become a public servant, you must deny yourself fame and fortune, take up the cross of refusing to be bought and paid for by special interests, and follow the common good. Churches that took this white-hot message seriously would agree to deny themselves the measures by which the world judges a church to be successful. Three services, I don't know, great parking, lattes, Christian aerobics, I don't know, not to mention, <laughs> not to mention no difficult conversations about anything that's actually going on in the world, and ministers who never ruffle anyone's feathers. That's a successful church. A church that is focused on saving its own soul, however, will lose it. A church that spends its energy and resources on saving its building 
rather than empowering the missions that flow from that building, we'll lose the building and the missions. I'm not asking anyone here to become a martyr, by the way. Some people think, well, lovely text, but just impossible because it's asking me to take up the cross of Jesus and then to die like Jesus. But wait, martyr, the word in Greek, means simply witness. A martyr is a witness. And what do witnesses do? A witness tells the truth about what they've seen and heard, no matter the consequences. When Paul speaks of dying to his old life and now living a new life in Christ, he is talking about being a witness for a new way of being in the world. Can you think of a better time in this country to just tell the truth? This is going to be the frontier of the future. Who will tell us the truth? Maybe more guns do not make us safer. Maybe wealth does not trickle down. Maybe money is not free speech. So who, who will take up the cross of speaking the truth? It used to be that the church was divided into various denominations, and they all had different doctrines and convictions about what constitutes real Christianity. I'm telling you, the day is coming, and now is, when real Christians will be the Jesus followers who tell the truth regardless of the cost. At the height of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, Desmond Tutu would gather his staff around him in the mornings for prayer, and then after the prayer, he would say this, if being a Christian became a crime, would there be enough evidence to convict us? And it's fascinating to me that in seminary, we're always training great leaders for Christ. That's the buzzword. Become a great leader for Christ. What, what about being a great follower of Jesus? If we were honest about this, we would tell anyone going into the ministry, this is going to cause suffering. And no authentic ministry can be judged successful by the standards of the world. Indeed, strange as it sounds, following Jesus is for losers. Losers. At Mayflower, we're not trying to help immigrants because we want to be that cool church that's all into the hopey, changey, peace and justice stuff. We have been given unmistakable direction by the prophets of our tradition, including Yeshua bar Joseph, otherwise known as Jesus, on how we're supposed to treat the alien, the sojourner, the stranger in our land because at one time or another we have been or will be a stranger in the land. At Mayflower we do not just feed homeless people because we want to allevi alleviate a little guilt. We feed them because they're hungry. Period. We do not put solar panels on our roof to be part of the alternative energy crowd because we want to be with it but because carbon-based energy is killing us all. So tell the truth. Take up the cross of truth-telling and accept the fact that much truth is not just inconvenient, it is dangerous. Ask journalists around the world today if they ever dreamed that their job might cost them their lives. At Mayflower, we do not try to help dreamers because we just like the sound of that. Lovely dreamers. Who could... I love that, dreamers. But because, no, because these kids are our kids. They're our kids. We do not tutor whiz kids because it's convenient, but because if we don't become a role model for them, who will? 
We don't stand with public school teachers because we're part of a political class or a union, but because they are being abused. We don't want health care for everyone because we're Bernie bros, but because access to health care is a moral imperative, not a political alternative. Today, when you visit Milligan Hall, you will see people sitting around at tables asking you to consider following. It's called Sign Me Up Sunday. You see how I transitioned right into this call for action? <laughs> and you're not being asked to become a martyr by signing up. You're being asked to do something more than just come and worship with us. You are being asked to consider which mission you hear calling your name. You are being asked to deny yourself the path of least resistance and voluntarily suffer for something larger than yourself. It may make you a loser. How's that for a pitch? I have a little rhetorical advice for the church. I think we should get away from the term Christian fellowship and replace it with Christian followership. Let's be Christian followers where leaders train followers by being followers and where everyone is a loser. Okay, not a great sounding platform, but <laughs> you can see why Peter got a little upset, pulled Jesus aside and said, let's work on this language a, a little bit, shall we? I mean, we could like hire a consultant to clean up all this negative language and put us on the path to success. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Temptation, thy name is success. Death, thy face is greed. Prosperity, your name is not gospel. In the end, the question is not whether you will die, but whether you will ever have found something worth living for. So I'm just going to read this one more time. It really is in the Bible. It's really amazing they still let us have it and read it. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world? and forfeit their life. Oh my, be careful. This plate is very hot. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Dr. Robin Myers, Senior Minister of Mayflower Congregation on UCC Church of Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services every Sunday are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. with adult education classes at 10 a.m. and a full church school for all ages is available during the second service. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street, a block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.